This is the Mobile Home Park Lawyer Podcast with Fur Neiman. If you're looking to generate wealth and passive income in the lucrative world of mobile home parks, you're in the right place. You'll discover solutions to the common legal and operational pitfalls and how to optimize parks to maximize income. Your host is in the trenches. He's a real estate attorney, financial analyst, and mobile home park investor and operator. Now, let's turn it over to Ferd Neiman. Welcome back, Mobile Home Park Nation. Ferd Neiman here again today with another episode of the Mobile Home Park Lawyer Podcast. Today, I'm going to talk about how to spot a bad deal or a bad investment. This is not going to be an all-inclusive list. That could go on forever. I've done lots of other episodes on good investments and a number of other techniques. Some of this may sound familiar because we will cover some stuff that maybe popped up in due diligence landmines or underwriting assumptions, things like that. But really today I'm going to cover you know, 25 things that come to mind in no particular order. Uh, things that maybe, maybe won't necessarily be a deal breaker but things at least ought to give you pause so right out of the gate things like private utilities i've said this before i mean not that you can't do private utilities but you know you got things like master metered electric or gas if you got well water or septic lagoon you just gotta be a little more cautious uh, especially to get the whole trifecta of you know major utilities electric gas and sewer and water that all are private that would be you know make my spidey senses go up like this might be a bad deal uh, as part of your regular due diligence, the next item would be you know, bad or collapsing sewer lines. You can generally scope the camera, scope and camera the sewer lines to figure this out. Um, that'll let you know if you've got a lot of capex needs. I've dropped a couple deals based on this. Like Orangeburg sewer is the worst. It fails pretty pretty much after 20, 30 years. Uh, and the next would be failed environmental study. That one's easy to figure out. You hire a phase one environmental engineer. The fourth would be a lapsed or expired operating permit. I've seen this several times. People buy a park and the permit is expired. Not good. The fifth I think they help you spot a bad deal would be just excessive capex needs. And a lot of the times this is obvious, like new roads, but you just gotta really factor this in, like the amount of brain damage and capital risk when you're looking at massive capex needs, something that makes it a bad deal on the forefront it, you can turn turn it around some other stuff including price for example but better than not to uh, avoid some capex problems at least large scale next is a short hold period i mean i've done this i've flipped deals so maybe i'm you know hypocrite on this but if i see somebody that's only owned the park for a few months or a year I'm like why do you sell it especially if they own lots of parks like what's your deal sometimes there's a reason like I've bought parks for the intention of flipping them. Like, look, there's money to be made. Quick flip, hundred thousand. Not a long-term play. Um, so there maybe is a reasonable answer, but at least makes my spidey senses go up that this might be there might be something here that the person's trying to dump their problem. Kind of the old greater fool theory. The next uh, I think that makes me kind of leery of it is when I see a professional oper operator owner leave meat on the bones. There's one skilled operator I've looked at a deal of his recently. And it's a big infill project. I'm like, I thought this. I thought you guys were an infill specialist. Why are you selling it with all this meat on the bone? My gut is the market's not strong enough to you know, warrant infill. Or maybe it's outside their geographic footprint, but it, just, it makes me a little leery. Next is when I see people inflate the lot rent on park-owned homes. There was a deal I was looking at here in Kansas City, and the lot rent on tenant-owned homes was 50 to to $100 less than the supposed lot rent on all the park-owned homes. 
This was clearly just a shifting of some of the home rent onto the lot rent line item, hoping that I was that great fool. Uh, another uh, thing that makes me a little leery, I think is a bad investment, is to pay for the upside. And to some degree, that's the current marketplace, right? If you've got 100 pad park, 50 occupied, used to be pretty common. You only want to pay based on the net operating income of the in-place 50 occupied units and pay nothing for the upside and the other 50. That would be like, why am I going to let you work for free for you? Now, I missed out on a deal that was a deal I really liked, and I was like stretching because I really wanted it because it was close to my house, and I already had management and maintenance nearby. And somebody else beat me by like 25 or 30%. It was like half a million bucks. I mean, it, was, it, was a, it was a big, big difference. And I was like, what the heck? And it's like, they're paying for the upside. And I, I, I did the math, and I told the seller, I said, look, I'm going to be working for free for years for you I don't want to give you that upside if I execute this business plan there was a private treatment plant so was, you know there was some downside on some of the cap some of the uh, utilities there was a lot of capex in the road so some of the things I mentioned here are bad investment I was willing to tackle those because I because the upside was so great but I don't want to pay for that upside somebody else did and I told the seller like it's not going to price it's not going to bank he said cash buyer more dollars and cents and sure enough the guy closed it so Worked out for the seller, but I just don't want to pay for too much of the upside. Um, another thing is lofty performance assumptions. You see us like broke brokers a lot. We'll just you know lie and lie. Oh, you can just up the rent two hundred dollars in in a minute, or you can just fill these twenty lots in a minute. Like, why didn't the seller do it? Right? Um, I had a client bought a deal, literally all the way across the country from where he lived, and he put a, he put two hundred fifty thousand dollars in escrow. At closing, I said, what's that for? He said, that's for, and he brought it to me like the day before closing, so I didn't do the transaction with him. I just did the last piece of stuff, corporate docs. And what do you know? He's like, well, the seller is going to manage it for me, and the reason he wasn't successful is he never had the capital. So I'm going to leave 250000 in escrow, and he's going to take a salary, and he's going to renovate the houses. And this is like 50, 50 units, all park-owned homes. Half the houses were beat up and empty. And I told my client, I said, if it works so well, why didn't the seller just, you know, fix up one and then rent it out and make a little bit of money and then do two and then a little next year do three and so on? He's like, I don't know. It's like, because it doesn't make sense in this market. The performance assumptions are just, oh, just if you fill them up and rent them all and then top line, oh, it'd be great. Like, yeah, not a good plan. Another sign of a bad deal is when you got a partner that has no skin in the game. This would typically be the deal finder, you know, the wholesaler or the syndicator that doesn't put any cash in, doesn't have any experience, doesn't sign a note, doesn't have a real obligation to work on it. They're just trying to convince you to be the greater fool and basically, you know, pay for their lunch. Next problem is that there's zoning or setback issues. This is hard to see on the outside a lot of times, but you can figure it out in relatively short order. This is key in your due diligence also is identify the zoning and setbacks challenge, setback challenges. Another sign of a bad investment is often bad seller records. Now, this is one that's pretty common. We've bought a lot of deals where the seller has really crappy records or they commingle personal and business and 20 other property accounts. And that's sometimes just kind of par for the course of this industry, but it's but it makes the deal harder. Uh, we just bought a park, and sure enough, after the seller gave us a rent roll and gave us a bill of sale for all these homes, and didn't have the title of some of the homes. We go, okay, no big deal. We'll go get lost titles. Well, sure enough, we close on a Friday. That weekend, the seller puts up a manager sign and sells one of the units and takes like $2,400 down 
And then we catch her because there's a human in it the next week. We're like, oh, this is supposed to be, this is supposed to be a vacant park on home. There's somebody living there. And they say, we just cut a deal with the seller. And we're like, really? Do you have a contract? No, it's a handshake deal. We go ask the seller and she's like, well, yeah, you got me. You want to split it? Like, what? You just sold us this house. No, we're not going to split it. You want to go to jail? You'd like a lawyer to send you a nasty letter? Because that's about to happen. Which goes in the next one. If the seller's fishy, sometimes you can tell the seller's kind of fishy. Uh, I'm on a contract on a deal right now where the seller's pretty fishy. And, you know, not giving us good records and um, not following the letter of the law of the contract. So really makes it look like a bad investment. Well, it's a good investment and the seller's trying to get out of it. So that's something that um, you really got to dive into pretty hard. The seller starts to get iffy. Another sign of a bad deal is if the title work and her easements are really messy. Um, title work with the wrong people, the wrong seller, wrong. There's family issues. There's a death, and there's a death down the line, or there's a divorce, and there's somebody missing from the chain of title. That can be a problem. Another sign of a bad investment could be the water bills. Um, sometimes that's an okay thing because you can buy it at a reduced price because there's a water problem, and then you can fix it. But sometimes it's hard to fix. I had one park. We, we spent like $10,000, not counting the water, trying to find this leak. And it turns out it was the main line was leaking, but it was going down into some you know, basic, you know, basic well in the earth. So it didn't have wet soil. It wasn't visibly leaking. We hired leak detection type guys that you know, would listen to the hissing of the water. They couldn't find it. We dug up and excavated numerous times. Eventually... We ended up breaking off the main line into three sections and putting in like three master meters so we could shut off portions of the park. And by doing that, we were able to kind of neutralize the, the, the problem. Because we would look at the one way to look for water leaks is to look at your master meter at like two in the morning. And it should be really close to zero usage, right? If, no, if somebody's up, you know, flushing the toilet, it'd be minimal. Probably not many too many people showering or watering their lawn at two in the morning. Um, so that was one way we could do it. We broke it into three sections. Another thing that could be a bad investment is potential property tax jump. You've you know, got to underwrite if the taxes are going to increase or not. And sometimes you get lucky. Sometimes there's some strategy to that. I have entire episodes on underwriting property taxes and appealing property taxes. I will highlight that in a case study that I'll get to here in the next couple of days on a deal that I just won a successful property tax appeal that you know, made, made a multi-hundred thousand dollar impact on the valuation. So you got to look at that. I mean, brokers are going to be notoriously deceptive on this. Oh, we, we underwrote a 20% increase in taxes. Well, yeah, but you're selling it at $5 million. It's on the books for 300000 I wouldn't say you're 20% is that uh, conservative. Another thing that could be that's an either-or um, are trees. Um, trees are nice for shade. They're, they're, they look nice. It makes it a better neighborhood, typically. But trees can be a problem because, let's be honest, they, leave, they drop leaves, which makes a mess part of the year. Yeah, but more importantly, branches fall. Trees fall. I've had trees crush mobile homes. I've had trees fall on cars. And I've had trees get in my sewer lines. Now, if you've got relatively new PVC sewer lines, it's probably not that big a deal. But if you have clay pipe and the Fernco couplers uh, are old, they're going to eventually fail, and then you're going to have gaps, and then the water's going to get out of the pipes, and the trees are going to get in the pipes, and you're going to have root clogs. So that stinks. And then same thing if you've got other types of inferior sewer material. Another potential uh, sign of a bad investment is the drainage issues. 
Sometimes I have a park that's like perfectly flat. Perfectly flat is not that good, I found out, because the water doesn't go anywhere. And it's really hard to sell houses when the yards are all slop and the road is wet, even if it rained like two, three days ago. I've also seen them parks where the drainage is so steep that, the, the, you know, the the house or the yard at the end of the hill is like a flood zone. So that's a problem too. So my opinion, a slight slope continuously down the property and off the property is ideal. Another way to spot a bad investment is if there's a lot of sex offenders. This is rarely disclosed, by the way. So you should run a sex offender check during your due diligence. And if you've got you know, a bunch of them, you may decide that you don't want to tackle that problem. You may not want to you know, lose to sleep at night if you got a bunch of kids in there or something, and there's a bunch of sex offenders in there. So you know, one strategy we do is we look, at, we look for that in, in advance as part of our due diligence. Uh, sometimes we put in playgrounds, and even more than one playground, because typically a sex offender is not allowed to be next to a playground. I had somebody come into the office one time. When I was there, I was with my manager, and I got a weird vibe from this guy. And... He was asking about the house with the view of the playground right next door. I was like, that is weird for a 45-year-old single guy. And he goes, one other issue, I'm a registered sex offender. Is that going to be an issue? Yeah, that's going to be an issue. Um, and you have to have your written tennis screening procedures and what you're going to approve and disapprove. But generally, to my knowledge, one of the things you can discriminate on in an application is status as a registered sex offender, which I believe is always a felony. Next problem, this is somewhat a bad seller record, just no rent roll. Um, you got to recreate it, and it's, this is not like commercial, like I used to do retail deals. You could get 10 at a Stopples. It's really tough to get 10 at a Stopples in a local park. And a lot of times the sellers do not want you to contact the tenants anyway, so to go get a Stopples from the tenants is pretty challenging. So no rent roll can become challenging, especially if it's not certified rent roll, which obviously it's not present, it's not going to be certified. Best practice is you make the seller have a certified rent roll, and you make them update it every month during your due diligence. All right, another way to spot a bad investment, I've done this before and it's actually saved me some problems and saved some clients some problems. Evaluate the homes. If they got old homes and small lots, that's gonna impact greatly your ability to infill vacant lots or to refill lots in the event old houses die. Because old houses, they can last a long time. Like I got a couple in the 50s that are in good shape, but for the most part, once the 70s, 80s models, like they're kind of dying. So they're going to go away at some point. Another problem is vendor availability. This has been a problem the last year, really. Is um, We all know like home inventory has been a challenge since COVID hit, but finding reasonable labor and vendors has been more and more difficult. I feel like I'm, I always tell my wife, I feel like I got the B team. And she's like, no, you got the C team. You know, the guys that tell you they'll be there at 8 a.m. and they show up at 2. You're like, what happened? I have one guy... He said, my steering wheel fell off. And I called my manager. I said, if his steering wheel really fell off, he's either A, not going to get there in an hour, which he told you he would be there in an hour, or B, you know, he's going to show up with a second steering wheel. And like he traded one out. And sure enough, he showed up like an hour and 20 minutes later, and he had a second steering wheel. I'm like, yeah, I had my friend go to the pick and pull, which is like a swap shop, and buy a steering wheel, and I changed it out while I barely wrecked into the yard rail. And I drove to work. True story. Uh, last one, search your personal property taxes. This is not that big a problem of bad investment, but if your tenants aren't paying their property taxes, it makes you wonder if you got a really low-quality tenant base. 
Also, your park-owned homes are susceptible to getting poached. Um, and or it's probably a sign of just other problems. So I've had that happen a couple times where, like, what do you mean there's five houses on the taxes paid on them? And then you got to deal with that. So there it is. No particular order, but 50 different ways to spot a bad investment. Until uh, next time, thanks and God bless. Also, I probably, never, I probably haven't said this enough on the podcast, but if, if you have interest in a certain topic, you can go to my website, themhplawyer.com or themobilehomelawyer.com, and submit an inquiry, and I will see if I can get to your topic. Somebody else had suggested this topic, so um, got some more in the queue. But if you want to participate, if you want me to say your name out loud, I might even do that. So tell me if you want credit. I might even let you be a guest if you want to. So anyway, I always appreciate the support and and uh, new content ideas. Thanks. You've been listening to the Mobile Home Park Lawyer Podcast with Ferd Neiman. Ready to learn more? Go to www.themobilehomelawyer.com for free resources and materials to help you succeed. If you love the podcast, go to Apple Podcasts, give us your review, and subscribe today. Thank you for listening. Neither the Supreme Court of Missouri nor the Missouri Bar reviews nor approves certifying organizations or specialist designations. The choice of a lawyer is an important decision and should not be based solely upon advertisements.